introduction. This week it's been this weekend it's been uh, our privilege together to be thinking about the place of God's word in our lives as believers and followers of Jesus Christ and it is a fitting way to bring to a culmination um, these reflections in this conference by hearing the word preached this morning. It's especially in the preaching of God's word that we grow in the grace of knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's our privilege to have with us uh, the Reverend Reverend John Curry, who um, is a lecturer in practical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary and the director of alumni relations. Um, More importantly, John um, has modeled for a number of years as a pastor uh, the kind of God-exalting, Christ-centered, careful, detailed, exegetical preaching that we long to see in the churches of Jesus Christ throughout our land. And so um, we're thrilled that he is teaching preachers how to preach well and, more important, modeling that for them. John has become a dear friend to me in the last few years as a great encouragement in my own uh, pastoral ministry as we um, have worked together on some projects and stayed in close contact. And so we're grateful this morning to have John with us. John, thank you. Well, good morning to you, and allow me to say what a, say sincerely what a great delight and privilege it really is uh, to be here uh, to bring the Word of God this morning, not just because it is always uh, an undeserved privilege to open up God's Word to God's people, but to be here in this congregation with you. Uh, I hold your pastors in such high esteem, as does the entire Westminster community, but also this weekend just to Uh, See what God is doing amongst you. He truly has established a church here in Tampa that is growing, is being sanctified, is witnessing, and is worshiping together. And it's just been a great delight to be with you. Would you please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Once you've found that, I'll ask you to bow with me for one more brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Come thou incarnate word, gird on thy mighty sword. Come and thy people bless, and give thy word success. Spirit of holiness on us descend. Our Father and our God, we come to you as your creatures, as redeemed creatures, and declare our dependence upon you to understand and receive and apply this word that you have so lovingly, faithfully provided for us. Father, we pray that you would help me as your servant today to proclaim your word for your glory and for the good of your people in the dependence on the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would help us to reverently listen, to joyfully receive, and to faithfully apply the Word of God. We ask it all for your glory in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. 
Culture watchers tell us that the church is in crisis. This weekend, according to the American Church Research Project, only 17.5% of the U.S. population will actually attend church. And the future doesn't look any brighter. A recent book entitled Unchristian analyzes the trends among 16 to 28-year-olds in terms of their perspective on Christianity and the church. And what they tell us is this, that only 16% of that population has a good impression of Christianity. According to the study, 87% of the emerging generation perceives Christianity as too judgmental. 85% perceive it to be hypocritical, 78% old-fashioned, and 70% just generally insensitive to others. According to the authors of Unchristian, this emerging generation wants to discuss and question everything, but they perceive Christians as unwilling to engage in genuine dialogue. They think of conversations as persuasion sessions in which Christians download as many arguments as possible. If we take data like this seriously, and I think we should, the Christian faith in our time is increasingly perceived not just as unbelievable, but as increasingly undesirable, unlovely, and even hostile. The foundation of the Christian faith in the authoritative revelation and its commitment to persuade others that truth is authoritative for them is perceived not only as irrelevant, but increasingly as dangerous in our time. See, we live in a time when truth is not something that comes from outside of ourselves or from above ourselves. In our postmodern moment, truth comes from the community in which we find ourselves. Or to paraphrase one postmodern philosopher, truth is whatever our peers will let us get away with saying. To believe, to proclaim that there is such a thing as universally applicable truth which comes from above is profoundly out of step and profoundly offensive in our time. So how do you do ministry in such a time as this? How do we do ministry with confidence in the cultural moment in which God has placed us? How does the church remain mission effective at such a cultural moment? Well, to answer that question, I went back to an acquaintance that I made a few years ago, an older, seasoned servant of God who had incredible impact as a church planter. He spent decades doing ministry in a pluralistic, cross-cultural context and saw incredible fruit from his ministry. And a contributing factor to his legacy of effectiveness was that he always gathered around him an entourage of young leaders. One of his apprentices was a young pastor about my age. He was facing a very dark situation in his city and in his church. And so his older mentor sent him a lengthy note to tell him exactly what to do in that situation. It actually turned out to be the last piece of correspondence that the old kingdom warrior ever wrote to anyone. Here's what he said. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It is extremely significant to understand that this is what Paul the Apostle chose to write as the very last thing to a son that he loved in the faith. Timothy was one who shed tears when he and Paul parted. And Paul addressed Timothy as his child, as his son in the faith. And now he can see the darkness gathering around Timothy. And he anticipates, as you heard in verse 5, that he must endure suffering. So Paul has him on his heart. Also on his heart is the mission of the church. You notice that he wants him to do the work of an evangelist as he fulfills his ministry. This is the last charge of the first missionary, and he is passionate about the faithfulness and the fruitfulness of a son that he has mentored in the ministry, and he's also passionate about the advance of God's kingdom in an ever-darkening time. And so what does he say? What's the charge? It's right there at the beginning of verse 2. Preach the word. Now, we'll dig into that more deeply in a few minutes, but that's the command. That's the charge. That's the imperative that the seasoned servant of God leaves with his beloved apprentice. Preach the word. Each of us makes choices about how to do faithful, fruitful ministry in our world. For those of us who have been set apart for the service, ordained to preach, this is our call. This is our charge. And returning to this passage is a call to examine what we trust, where we put our time, what we're willing to die for in terms of ministry priorities. But this is not just a passage which speaks to those who are set apart for the service of the Word. It speaks to the church, to those who receive ministry and who, as a kingdom of priests, participate in that ministry and must also make choices about ministry strategy. What kind of ministry do you expect from your church? What kind of ministry do you expect from your pastors? What kind of ministry will you support, participate in, invest your life in? How do you expect the church to nurture your soul and the soul of your family? How do you expect the church to equip you for service to your friends in in this cultural moment? And not least, how do you serve faithfully and fruitfully if God opens a door for you to serve your neighbors, and even perhaps the nations? What's the strategy that you can be confident in, in a truth-intolerant, darkening cultural moment? Well, if you ask the apostle who was missionally effective, culturally savvy, and philosophically informed, not to mention divinely inspired, he said, preach the word. The final charge of God's spokesman contains a ministry-shaping reality for those who desire to seek God's kingdom in our time. And it's this. If you want to serve God in a way that is in touch with the times, prioritize the proclamation of the word. 
That's what I want you to have ringing in your ears and in, on your hearts this morning. If you hear nothing else, if you want to serve God in a way that is profoundly in touch with the times, prioritize the proclamation of the word. And we're going to get at that by noticing three aspects of this ministry-shaping reality. I'd ask you to notice them with me. First, we'll look at the timing of the charge. Second, we'll look at the nature of the charge. And third, we will look at the manner of the charge. First, would you notice with me the timing of the charge? I suspect that most people in this room or many people in this room have an iPhone or a BlackBerry or perhaps more than one of both. And the reason that those little devices have had such success in our culture is because there is a need for them. One of the many functions that they perform for us is they keep our schedule organized. We are a time-sensitive, time-conscious culture, particularly if attention to time will affect our productivity, or our profit, or meeting the expectations of those who reward us for our work. Being alert to time matters to us in our culture. It has a significant shaping reality on our patterns and priorities of life, does it not? Well, what I want you to notice this morning is that this command is extremely time-sensitive. There are two times which the servant of the word is to have, as it were, on his calendar and to which he is to respond. First, the servant of the word must be conscious of the time in which he lives. Look at verse 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching, itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Timothy was encountering the effect of a darkened, truth-opposing culture in his city and his ministry. Verse 3 tells us that they will not put up with sound teaching. That means the pattern of sound words that was delivered through the apostles. That refers to the good deposit, the gospel of truth, which Timothy has been told has been charged to protect. They will turn away from listening to the truth. The apostolic deposit will be intolerable to people. They will not endure it. They will not find it intellectually satisfying. But truth and tolerance never exists in a vacuum. It always embraces something else. Would you also notice that it's not that they don't have teachers, but that they actually accumulate teachers. It's not that people in a truth and tolerant time are not listening to anyone or have any theories or any philosophies of life. He says that they actually pile up teachers to satisfy their tickling ears, their itching ears. That means people who entertain their intellectual curiosity. Gurus whose system of thought and rhetoric resonates with their already predetermined feelings and dispositions and wants and understandings of their world and who they are. They actually, he says, stack up teachers who, notice, suit their passions. See, people in a truth-opposing time don't just turn away from, they always turn to. Verse 4 says that they turn from truth to myths. Myths means a tale, a legend, a fable, 
that is regarded as untrue. It is a man-made speculative interpretation of the world that only gullible people believe. So here's the picture of the time in which Timothy was to minister. People who were wa- would be walking after humanly crafted stories, narratives, that pretend to interpret their world. They would have a negative attitude toward truth and a positive attitude toward error. And what I think is striking and so profoundly relevant about this passage is that it is precisely this symptom, truth intolerance, which requires preaching the word. Would it take much work for me this morning to convince you how similar this is to the postmodern moment in which we now seek to serve and advance God's kingdom? That we live in a time where people are intolerant of authoritatively revealed deposits of truth, but they accumulate all sorts of cultural voices that tell them that their self-satisfying, self-interpreted, self-willed approach to life is actually the truth. When truth is seen merely as a construct of the community in which we happen to live and is institutionalized by those who happen to be in power, when authentic living is sought by creating your own story from the menu of narratives that happens to be out there in the culture. And I am struck by the fact that it's an awareness of precisely that kind of a cultural moment which prompts God's servant to say, preach the word. But there's another time that must move him to take up this charge. Verse 3 and 4 picture for us the cultural moment in which God's servant lives. But if you look at verse 1, it points us to the cosmic moment on which God's servant must set his vision. Look at verse 1 with me. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. The time that must rule the vision and the affections of God's servant is the time of the king's return. In verse 1, Paul brings witnesses to to this charge that he's giving to Timothy. They are, if you like, the witnesses to the contract. And what witnesses they are, God and Christ Jesus. God and Christ Jesus are the ones to whom the servant of the word is ultimately accountable for his stewardship. Particularly here, Christ Jesus as the judge at his return. That time when Christ's glorious rule now hidden from sight, will be fully and finally unveiled. That cosmic moment when Christ's rule will be openly displayed in all of his glory by his judgment of all who have ever lived. You see, the time to which God's servant is to be most sensitive and which should shape his sense of stewardship is the return of the risen, reigning Christ. Not least because it's at that judgment that Timothy would give an account for his stewardship. Chapter 2, verse 15 of this same letter, Paul wrote this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, 
rightly handling the word of truth. Now, if we had the time, we could refer also to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. We won't do that. You maybe want to read that for yourself. But that verse and verses like 1 Corinthians 3 teach us that God's spokesman believed that servants of the word would give an account on that day of Christ's return for how they exercise their stewardship. And as he is about to move off the scene now, he wants his son in the service to view that day of Christ's return and to work in a way that is approved. Not to motivate him from fear or insecurity. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he told us that God has not given us a spirit of fear and that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The Christian's confidence, including the servant of the word's confidence before Christ on that day, is not his own faithfulness but the grace of God given him in Christ. But it's standing on that grace that the Lord's servant is to let the promise of that cosmic moment motivate him to work in a way that is according to the wisdom and the will of his king who will come as the judge. You see, as important as the immediate cultural moment is, that imminent cosmic moment must be the benchmark for the servant's work. Why? Well, lots of reasons, but in large part because it's then that the wisdom of the age, which seems so imperishable, so pervasive and so powerful in our time, then that wisdom of the age will be exposed as weak and foolish and perishable. And the wisdom of God in Christ will be cosmically unveiled as righteous and true for all eternity. And it's at that moment that the servant of the word will give an account for their stewardship. And so assured of the grace of God and driven by a passion for the glory of God in Christ to resound throughout the universe, servants of the word take up the charge and proclaim the word in their time. That's the timing of the charge. I'd like you to notice with me next, if you would, the nature of the charge. The nature of the charge. And we find that in verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, there are actually five commands in that verse, but they all are ex- explain or expand upon that first one. Preach the word. In that time, uh, the master of a large house or a king would have a servant who was dedicated to go from his presence out into the marketplace or wherever and to speak for the king or the lord of the large house. He was a Herald. Sometimes they would carry a little staff with them that designated them as the spokesman of the master of the large house or the king. Chief qualification for this service was a loud, clear voice. And understood about the position was that the herald spoke not for themselves but for their master. Their authority was not their own but that of their master. You might picture this in the sort of medieval picture you see in movies and 
where the herald would wear the livery with the coat of arms of his master and go out into the courtyard or out into the marketplace and say, Hear ye, hear ye. Maybe the closest contemporary picture we have of that is at the State of the Union address before the president enters the chamber, the crier comes in before the president and says in a loud voice so that the whole assembly recognizes who's coming, the president of the United States. That's the image painted by that word preach in verse 2. It means herald. It means proclaim aloud, proclaim publicly with all of the authority of your master, with clarity, with certainty, proclaim. And so as the old kingdom warrior goes off the scene, as he contemplates his own departure, as he considers a darkening context, he says to his son in the faith, step up, open your mouth, proclaim. And then he specifies what it is that is to be proclaimed. He says, preach the Word. Now, Timothy would be left in no doubt what the Word is because his mentor has just fixed his confidence to the Scripture. Look at the end of chapter 3, and we find those precious verses on the inspiration and the sufficiency of Scripture. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The word that the servant is to publicly proclaim is the scripture that has been breathed out by God. That's what we've been talking about here all weekend. Because the scriptures are God-breathed, they bear his authority, they bear his trustworthiness, his truthfulness. They partake of his infallibility so that the scriptures are without error in all that they affirm. And it is that divinely authoritative, entirely trustworthy, infallible, inerrant word which the servant of the word is to proclaim that and nothing less and nothing more. Why? Well, several compelling reasons are given in this letter alone. At the end of uh, chapter 3, verse 17, you heard that it is sufficient that the man of God, for the man of God to fulfill his ministry. But there's more. Chapter 3, verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, it is precisely because they are breathed out by God that the Scriptures are, as Paul will put it in other places, the sword of the Spirit, the weapon of our warfare, which has divine power to tear down strongholds, namely the arguments and the lofty opinions which myth-following people in our time raise up against the knowledge of God. It was the mid-1980s, and a man who had at one time been athletic enough to be scouted by a professional sports team who had, through hard work and fair intelligence, built himself up to the place where he had a nice house, a nice family, a nice car, and a good career, the kind of North American dream, lay in a hospital being told that if he didn't stop drinking, he was going to die. His family's pastor came to visit with him and began to try to share the gospel with him from the Scriptures. 
They couldn't hear, uh, he couldn't really hear each other very well because his roommate in the room was listening to the television rather loudly. And so they decided to go down to the chapel of the hospital in which the man, to which the man was committed. As they sat in that chapel, the pastor still felt as though he just was not getting through to the man. And so finally, in almost desperation, he turned to John chapter 1 and began to read that rather lofty, complex passage about the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he read through John chapter 1 to this man, he got to John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and continued on and realized that the man was no longer following him. He was stuck on John 1.14. This man who had been a rough, tough, hard Glasgow policeman fell to his knees and began to weep, confessed his sins, and put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason I know the details of that story is that was my dad. And he told me afterwards that John 1.14 was what got through to him because for 40 years he could not believe that Jesus Christ was God. That's the power of the Word of God to give life and to tear down strongholds. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, The Bible is a lion. Let it out. It'll fight for itself. It is the Scriptures as the very Word of the Creator and Giver of life, which is the instrument that the Spirit uses to effect the salvation of sinners. Precisely because it is the Scriptures that reveal this risen Christ. Listen to chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. Now, we don't have time to expound those verses today, but what those few verses tell us is that for the apostle, the word of God, which was not bound, which he preached in the example that Timothy was to follow, was the gospel of Jesus Christ raised. And because the scriptures reveal the risen, reigning, returning Christ, they are the sword that the Spirit uses to effect salvation in the life of sinners. And from this one letter alone, this charge, preach the word, is loaded with all of that meaning. In light of the times, for the sake of the souls of men and women who are living in darkness, proclaim the God-breathed, Christ-revealing, salvation-effecting, equipping-sufficient scriptures. Can I ask you this morning, is that what you would say? Is that what you would want said? Does this not force us to ask if we believe what God's spokesman believed about the Scriptures and about their proclamation? In light of the times, is this what you would want said to your church? Is this what you would want somebody to say to your pastor? Given the same concern, the mission of the church in an increasingly difficult, truth-intolerant culture, it's worth asking ourselves, as we envision service for the kingdom, where do you place your confidence for effective service? Is it the preaching of the Word? Well, that's the nature of the charge. Preach the Word. Third, and last, would you notice with me the manner of the charge. That's also found at the end of verse 2. Reprove, 
pardon me, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. A few months back, I watched a, what I thought was a very cool DVD. It was called Inside the Secret Service. And what the documentary did was take you behind the scenes to some degree of the Secret Service. They obviously weren't going to tell us very much, but there were some very interesting things that were depicted behind the scenes of the Secret Service. One of the images which struck me the most was they actually went behind the rope line when the president is shaking hands. And if you've seen that rope line from the rope line side, from the side of the crowd, you know that there are Secret Service agents behind him and to both sides of him who are always watching the crowd. But what you see behind the rope line is that they're all standing with their hands out like this. They're ready in an instant to turn away a weapon or to deal with an attacker or an aggressor. And they walk the line with their hands almost in a crouching position out like this, in at the ready to serve when the moment arises. That actually catches the servant's manner that's described by that group of words in verse 2. Be ready. Be on hand. Be always alert. Be at your task. In seasons when the truth is tolerable to people and in seasons when it is not, whatever the seasonal climate, whatever the winds of the culture that particular moment, you need to be at your post. You need to be ready to fulfill your charge, which, please notice, will not be easy. It won't always go smoothly. God's spokesman is not naive about the tension of unseasonable proclamation to fallen creatures in a fallen culture. Notice, if you would, that it involves reproof and it involves rebuke. And those are, those are not pleasant words. Those are confrontive words because they involve correction and they involve censure. You see, unseasonable proclamation involves going against the grain. It involves saying to a fallen culture and fallen creatures that God says that's wrong and there's right Stop doing that. Believe this. This charge is to be done with alert urgency, at times inconveniently and all too often confrontingly. I find this a sobering reality check. I like people. I like being liked by people. And I want my kingdom service to grow, to have an impact. And what I really, really want is for people to hear the word of God and to love it and to gather around it and to enjoy it. And I think that's true of you as well. But the reality is that in a fallen age, we will often have to speak at unseasonable times in uncomfortable ways. And if we lose sight of that reality, we will be tempted to compromise for the sake of success. For the sake of an impact, we will be tempted to become more political, more pragmatic than proclamatory as we are called to be. In a fallen culture to fallen creatures, proclaiming the word is to be characterized by alertness and often inconvenient confrontation. But please notice that this is not justification for ugly self-righteous anger which all too often has characterized the proclamation of the church. You know, sometimes the reason the culture kicks back against our proclamation is because we are self-righteous. 
as though we gained the knowledge of the truth based on our own merits. And we actually do lack compassion and we lack patience in the way we do our proclamation. Do you notice the last half of verse 2? How the proclamation is to take place with complete patience. Of all people, it should be those who are the steward of the message of Christ who know what patience is. Our message is a revelation of the long-suffering and perseverance of God with His people, bringing His plan to fulfillment in Christ, the Christ that we preach. And the reason that we wait for the Lord's return, according to the Apostle Peter, is that God is patient toward His people, not wanting any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we ourselves, if you're a Christian today, are the beneficiaries of God's redemptive patience. We were ignorant, and God was patient. We were rebellious, and God was patient. We have experienced in our own life, by the grace of God, His long-suffering and His perseverance to bring us to salvation in Christ. And so amidst the cultural kickback and the necessary confrontation of proclaiming the truth, we must be characterized by complete patience. Patience that longs for the redemptive, the redemption of truth-intolerant, ear-tickling, myth-following sinners. Paul seems to picture for Timothy the balance, again, that Spurgeon had when he talked about, was described as being a lion in the pulpit, but a lamb in the pew. Courageous preaching, concern for the redemption of captives, so that it is characterized by complete patience and teaching people all that they need to know for freedom. That's the manner of the charge. If our vision is to engage this generation, if it's to serve God's kingdom in this particular cultural moment, the strategy in which we must place our confidence is the heralding of God's word. The proclamation of the risen reigning, returning Christ from all of Scripture to all people. If we want to serve God in a way that's in touch with the times, profoundly in touch with the times, we have to take up the charge that's given to God's servant, proclaim the word. Do you believe that? Will you place your confidence in this God-ordained strategy? Will you do it as God's servants? resting solely in the righteousness of him who alone was faithful to proclaim God's word, depending on the spirit that by his resurrection he has caused to dwell within us, will you, by God's grace through faith, take up the charge and continue the charge in your time, in your place, in this moment, to proclaim the word? Let's pray.